We're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined today by Michael Young, senior editor at the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut and the editor of Diwan, Carnegie's Middle East blog. Michael Young is the author of The Ghosts of Martyrs Square, an eyewitness account of Lebanon's life struggle. He was the opinion editor as well as a columnist for the Daily Star, and he currently contributes a bi-weekly commentary for The National. And the following episode is split into two sections. The first, a reflection on what's been happening the last three weeks and the political and economic factors that contributed to the uprising still underway. The second section, beginning at 36 minutes and 15 seconds, is a look back at Michael Young's career. As a student at AUB, living in Hamra and Ras Beirut during the Civil War, his brief departure to the States to pursue a master's degree, and his return to Lebanon, becoming a political analyst, a well-respected journalist, and an author. His book, The Ghosts of Martyrs Square, is recommended reading to anyone who wants to understand what's happening right now in Martyrs Square, as well as a wider appreciation for the power-sharing mechanism Lebanon struggles with, at times producing benefit, and that includes pluralism. Before we get to Michael Young, if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider a contribution through Patreon. Linked in the details box, any contribution is appreciated. This is an independent endeavor, and I'm doing my best to memorialize and capture the uprising day by day as events unfold. For episode 37 of the Beirut Banyan, I'm Rani Shatah with Michael Young. of thousands of protesters in Martyrs Square. This might be the first time we've seen potentially half the country protesting together. On an instinctual level, on an emotional level, does this round feel different to you? Does it feel different than the You Stink movement? Does it feel different than March 14? Definitely it feels different. It's uh... You know, in terms of, as you suggested, the volume, the sheer volume of people, um, uh, you know, definitely, this, there is nothing like this. We've not seen this in the past. In uh, 2005, there were, of course, large crowds on the 14th of March, but mm-hmm. in the whole period surrounding the 14th of March, there were smaller numbers of people who mm-hmm. were mobilized. Um, as for the Eustink campaign, you know, again, it was... We're not talking about the same number of people. But I mean, really what you could feel this time, which was very tangible, and which also you could feel at the time of the uh, You Stink campaign, is just the fundamental disgust that the Lebanese have with a political class that is incompetent, that is corrupt, Mm. that essentially, um, you know, just cannot manage the country. They manage the country like a series of farms, (laughs) <laughs> but they cannot, as a combined force, manage the country properly, you know, yes. in a united way. And you, you sense that this time around, is it a culmination of perhaps both March 14 and the Ustink movement combined, that there's a calling for political and economic reform? Or is it something that's maybe more basic, that there's just genuine anger with how the financial situation has devolved to where we are? 
Look, I don't think it's just the financial situation. And I, I mean, for me, this is different than March 14th, mm-hmm. and it has nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. March 14th was a particular moment, and, mm-hmm. uh, and it was largely a political um, uh, uh, demonstration. Mm-hmm. This is really much more fundamental. The Lebanese have come to the conclusion that they are basically, their daily lives are deteriorating mm-hmm. uh, you know, on a daily basis. Everything's more expensive. The air they breathe is poison. Yes. They have no basic services. I mean, it's a general disgust with the deterioration of their country on a daily basis. They are paying more and more for less and less. And mm-hmm. I think they basically just have said enough. You know, young people have no future. The only future they have is to leave the country. Um, we've got a political class that is completely indifferent to this. Yeah. All they function on is the basis of you know clientelism. They will give their political clients bits of the crumbs. Yeah. They will take the largest, the larger part of the pie. Yeah. And this is you know this is provoked in people just a general revulsion with the political class. It's as simple as that. And do you see the the birth of something new coming out of this momentum, whether it's a a new a new way of governing, or perhaps upending the old power sharing mechanism? Look, I'm very skeptical. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the Lebanese must must accept something. That it, it's that at every election, this political leadership that they're deriding today is the same political leadership that they bring back to power after every election. Yeah. So, you know, perhaps in the next elections, we will see when and how they take place. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may see a difference. But I'm I'm skeptical, and I think uh, I think the political class is skeptical itself. It feels under threat, definitely, mm-hmm. because it's been completely discredited. But yeah. ultimately, you know, do I see a fundamental change in the Lebanese? I'm not sure. Are Lebanese today less sectarian than they were before? Right. Okay, officially, yes, they condemn the sectarian system, but what they're really condemning is they they're feel, they're condemning the fact that the distribution of the spoils is not coming down to them. Yeah. Uh, you know, but you, know, you still have sectarian reflexes across the board, even in, in the protest movement. So, um, And you mean in terms of the, the potential, the counter-protest that we saw in Baabda? Definitely that, uh, mm-hmm. definitely. I mean, definitely, and the Hariri, uh, you know, when Hariri yeah. resigned, of course, you had a large number of Sunnis yes. who had been in the protest movement who were saying, well, why is it the Sunni who is paying the price of the, of the, of, of the protest yeah. and only the Sunni? So definitely sectarian reflexes continue to exist. Mm-hmm. And, but the main issue here is really the question of the political leadership. This is a system based, unfortunately, on clientelism. And what people are feeling is that the political leaders are not distributing the money in a fair way. And, you know, now we can complain about that, but that's not a very healthy way to think of things. In other words, we should not be relying more on on these political leaders who are basically treating politics as a, you know, a a question of throwing out favors to their supporters. And, you know, I've not seen really that there is a move towards something genuinely new today. I, I, it's early, you know, maybe we need one, two, three revolutions for this to emerge. Yeah. Um, but I'm not seeing today that there is a, still a vital force for something to create something new in Lebanon. This remains a very traditional 
society when it comes to its politics and to its sectarian leaderships. And you see pressure against the ruling class. And this might be the most pressure they've felt since the end of the Civil War. Aside from the attempted 72-hour window political reforms that Hadidi offered, and what looks like some attempt at fighting corruption here and there, what do you think is even possible, given who we have in power now? What are the gifts they can give to the protesters to say, look, we're listening to you, we're going to change the way we operate? Is it even possible at this point that they can retain their position and persuade protesters to kind of give them a chance? Or, or do you think it's too late? Look, I think it's too late because mm -hmm. the way that political classes traditionally dealt with these kinds of things is mm -hmm. to, is when there was money in the system, they could find ways of, you know, redistributing money. In other mm -hmm. words, they would lower, you know, they would, they would engage in some kind of um, buy-off, if you will, mm -hmm. I'm being very cynical. You would buy off the population with something or other. Yeah. But today the, the system is bankrupt the political leadership in Lebanon does not have money to redistribute to its um, uh, clientele. They don't have jobs to redistribute to their political clients. Yeah. They basically are in a system that is bankrupt. And therefore, the traditional means of buying off the population are not going to work. And we are going, we're heading towards far worse because the financial crisis is going to hit us um, very strongly and already whether the officials admit it, admit it or not, we are already in a system in which you have currency controls. So what do you mean by far worse to you means a, aside from austerity measures and perhaps transfer limits, how do you think the average Lebanese will be hit by the aftermath? Well, already austerity measures says a lot. It means that the Lebanese have less money. Okay. In other words, the Lebanese who have protested because they're getting less and less for more and more, are going to have even less to spend on, on you know, on, yeah. on daily life. And this that, means, yeah. that means things, I don't mean that can they go to the restaurant or can uh -huh. they buy another car. Yeah. I mean things like can they pay for their children's schools? Yes. Can they pay for the double electricity bills and the double water bills that a lot of people are paying? Yeah. Can they pay every day for the gasoline? That, drive, that, that they pay, for which they pay to come down from the mountains to go to their jobs. Yeah. We're talking about basic things today. We're not, mm -hmm. no longer talking about luxuries. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is already today, um, it's very difficult for many people to make a living. They're yeah. earning very low salaries, given the costs that are imposed on them in Lebanon. It's going to get worse. I mean, I think in and of itself, austerity is very bad. And you anticipate this this system to to find a way to cope or i think we're going to be in for a long period of um of a very long and difficult period yeah. and the reason i say this is look the only way uh, it's sort of accepted austerity doesn't really generate economic growth yeah. austerity tends to kill economic growth yeah. now what are the things that would help generate uh, the economy, that would build growth, that would create jobs where people would be hired. These are all things that, you know, we don't have. Yeah. We don't have large industries to, to hire people. 
um, you know, a young young person today goes to college. What does he do? The first thing he thinks of is to yeah. to get out of the yeah. country. Absolutely. It's a ticket out of the country. Absolutely. So our young people have no impetus to stay. Um, you know, the 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 big industrialists. How many are there who are really willing or committed to creating new jobs yeah. for the young people? The society is not really geared towards the future. It's 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 it hasn't been for decades. This is not a country that thinks strategically. Unfortunately, it's a country that has been living off um, inflows of cash from the diaspora. Uh, I think that that's going to decline even further given the. Uh, currency controls that are now being imposed in a very surreptitious way by the by the central bank. Yes. We're going to see more and more difficult, uh, it's going to be more and more difficult for the Lebanese economy to survive. I'm very worried about this. So somewhere between, at best, a managed bankruptcy. Well, look, let's face it, at this point, this crew in power is not going to solve the problem. Well, that's, yeah, that goes back to my point, though. What I mean, what can these protesters actually achieve? Well, look, to be let's be realistic. Yeah. Today, their goals were, I think, very ambitious, mm -hmm. given already what we can do. It's not to protect the political class. The political class is a failed class. It's, yes. it's, they're, they're essentially thieves. Yeah. They have no saving grace, as far as I'm concerned. But at the same time, the the attitude of the of the protesters has been to say we want to change everything mm -hmm. well that really doesn't work i mean you know you cannot bring someone in off the street and say run the country <laughs> you know and even the idea of bringing in technocrats it sounds nice because yeah. they you know there's this impression that te technocrats are, are clean but you cannot run a country against the political class right and once you know the civil service in lebanon the public administration is full of tens of thousands of people who really serve the political class. Yes. These are not people who are going to necessarily facilitate the lives of, of you know, a technocrat, the life of a technocratic government. And, you know, the only option that I see, and it's really not a good option, mm -hmm. but it's that ultimately Lebanon will be so deep in its hole that you're going to have international intervention at some level, whether it's the IMF or some group of donors yeah. who are basically going to put their hand on the economy of the country and impose impose change. You know, and you know, this is not an ideal solution by any stretch of the imagination yeah. because often the IMF or you know or it approaches things from an austerity perspective, cut spending. Yes. And people will be will lose their jobs and taxes will be raised and so on and so forth. But unfortunately, I see that this political class is so incapable of doing anything that would involve them voluntarily surrendering their financial stakes in the system. They are so incapable of doing that, that maybe, maybe there is a hidden blessing, at least for a while, that, Leb that Lebanese, that Lebanon's politicians be, pre be prevented from, uh, you know, uh, controlling the economy. But once again, I'm not, I don't think this is ideal yeah. because ultimately it means Lebanon will lose its sovereignty. It means that Lebanon may actually have to um, give up a certain amount of its, of, of its future revenues in such things as oil and gas, for right. example, right. 
in order to get through this very dangerous period? No, it's, that's very possible. This is not going to be a happy period. Can I ask you, I mean, in your opinion, why do you think the, the ruling class we have are, are so incompetent and unable to deliver? Is it purely just a matter that they're thieves and so corrupt? Or is there a structural problem in the way Lebanon functions that caters to this type of leadership? Yeah, definitely. There is a structural problem. Mm. It, there is a structural problem. And it goes beyond corruption. Yeah. Um, you know, the pre-war, pre-1975 Lebanon had, of course, a sectarian leadership. Yes. But there was the notion, at least there was a notion of the state, mm. in the sense that state institutions did have a certain amount of, um, of independence and strength with regard to uh, the political class. Okay. Uh, the political class was very strong, and and if you recall, in the elections of '66, the Shehabists lost, yes. and they came back. The, the, this traditional political class, right. but they did have a greater sense of responsibility with regard to the state. Mm-hmm. Today, the post-war period essentially was built around essentially clientelism, where the state was subdivided into these farms, each controlled by one of the sectarian leaders or two of the sectarian leaders. There was a division of the spoils across the board. The reconstruction program was itself a division of the spoils. In other words, if, if if, if to build an airport cost X or to build a, a cellular phone network cost X, you had to effectively double the cost or triple the cost to pay off all the different people who wanted to be involved in this because they wanted to make money off of reconstruction. So, of course, we, we racked up an enormous debt yeah. in, the, in the first decade of reconstruction, but we also reshaped the system where essentially it became run by, like, as I said, a, a series of sectarian farms. And that's the system. That's not just the corruption of the political class. So but, it's the Taif Accord. And, and it's, but again, it's not really Taif, because Taif yeah. didn't define this. It's yeah. more the post-war Syrian system that was put in place. Yeah. You know, how did the Syrians run Lebanon? They basically had an intelligence chief in Lebanon, yeah. uh, but also they had leaders within Syria, each of whom had their particular Lebanese leaders working on their behalf. So Khaddam, for example, had a relation with that particular politician. Um, uh, Ghazi Kanaan had a relation with this particular politician. In other words, what you did, you created a system that effectively was in parallel to the state and undermined the state. The, The protesters, maybe without realizing it, they're untangling the old Syrian way of governing Lebanon that we kind of, we continued after they left. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They're, they're trying to, yes, they're, they're trying to untangle that. But yeah. again, one thing that I think it's important to understand, if we expect these demonstrations or these protests to come out with a non-sectarian alternative, this is a mistake. I don't believe that, that these people are less sectarian. Mm-hmm. I mean, many are. You're talking I, about I'm the protesters. Sure, yes, I'm sure there are some who are genuinely opposed to sectarianism as a matter of principle. I'm not yeah. saying that there are none. There are none. But I think that the vast majority continue to be. It's more that they're disappointed with the way the sectarian system has not redistributed spoils to them. So Tripoli protesting is upset about Tripoli's case. 
Nabati is upset about Nabati. It's not a nationwide. Well, I think so. I mean, Tripoli. Yeah. Why? I mean, why is Tripoli one of the cities that has been most active in these demonstrations? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you go to Tripoli, you will understand. Yeah. Tripoli has a significant. I mean, there is a large poor population in in Tripoli. I mean, this is a place which effectively has been left by the wayside in Lebanon's reconstruction effort to a certain extent. We haven't seen the same levels of marginalization in Beirut uh, as we've seen in, in, in a place like Tripoli. I so mean, Tripoli is, is protesting within the sectarian psychological framework, that it's this is a Sunni disappointment with the Sunni leadership, as opposed to looking at the country and saying, you know what, all that doesn't matter any longer, we're all one and... Look, I, 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 think, I think that many people, when they go out, they, don't, they will not state it as bluntly as you state yeah, it. Yeah. I don't think they come out and say, we as Sunnis, they feel part of a wider national effort. Sure. But I think, I think ultimately that they're focused on their particular socioeconomic situation, mm-hmm. which is that of being a Sunni in a, in a, Sunni, in a Sunni city that has been, to an, to an extent, marginalized in the post-war yes. period, uh, you know, and I, I, you know, all this is mixed into the, in the, in the psyche of Lebanese. It's yeah. not just, it doesn't mean they're less sincere when they see this as a national effort, yeah. it, because it is, to an extent, a national effort. But to, to imagine that this completely erases or destroys their sectarian instincts, I think would be a mistake projecting a few months or even, let's say, a year or to the next elections. Do you think the current parties we have will retain influence and whatever you see on the street will not translate to a new party or a new, a new group of leadership? And I'm trying to, trying to gauge how influential the traditional parties will be and how influential the street will be. In the coming stretch, look. I think I think uh, that's a good question because it, it's actually a, it's a good question because it really is a question that civil society should ask itself. Yeah. There is a genuine opportunity today to say to people, look, um, you know, we as civil if if civil society were to organize political coalitions, they could say, look, we cannot promise you the same services. Yeah. that some of your political leaders are promising you because they control the state. But ultimately, what we can promise is that if we take power, we can change the way the state is managed. Yes. This is, I think, potentially a powerful message today. Yeah. In other words, uh, you know, ultimately, there is, I think, a willingness on the part of the Lebanese public to listen to a message that is different. Mm-hmm. Because, frankly, today the Lebanese feel that the clientelist system that existed or that continues to exist is not one that is benefiting them anymore. Right. They're, not, they're getting poorer. They're not getting any money from their political leaders. Yeah. Okay, they may get some money, but ultimately the system is breaking down because there is not enough money to go around. Right. And so there is a willingness to listen to an alternative political agenda. But the test really today, I think, is for the independents, the protesters who we're seeing today, to try to create political groups um, that challenge the old order. Now, I think a key key aspect of this, 
and I don't think that the Lebanese have listened to it enough or have understood it enough, mm -hmm. is that these groups, rather than try immediately to work on the national level through parliamentary elections, their focus should be in the, in the near future to focus on local elections, mm -hmm. because local elections are ones where the outcome affects the daily lives of citizens. This is more important than whether you're, you're a member of parliament. Okay. Right. So this is going back to municipal elections? Absolutely. And, I think yeah. that the focus of civil society should be in a major way on municipal elections, mm -hmm. especially in Beirut, which is a very big, this is a major piece of the pie, Yes. Beirut. And you've got to go, you know, you, civil society has to work at this level and look at ways to improve the daily life of citizens in the city, in their urban or even in their you know, rural context, in such a way that they have a card yes. to show when they go to the parliamentary elections. When, when they tried, was it three years ago or so, Medina Ti Beirut, and that, that the climate wasn't, that basically it wasn't the right time, that now is perhaps that opportunity? Yeah, they still did quite well, but they yeah. did well maybe more for political reasons because of divisions in Beirut particularly, yeah. divisions within the majority list in Beirut. Yeah. But the fact is that I think, mm. I think that the focus today should be not just in Beirut, in Tripoli, in Sidon, yes. yes. in, in Nabatiyi. Yeah. Municipal elections are not regarded by the parties as a fundamental threat to their interests. Right. But they, they can go a long way because, as I said, you're affecting the daily life of citizens. Yes. You know, look at, let me give you a very simple example. Look at the Zahli municipality. They installed essentially 24 hours a day of electricity in Zahli through a system of, you know, electricity rationing and generators. Yeah. Zahli has 24 hours of electricity a day. That's true. Within, and it's not that they're paying extra. Yeah. It's within their electricity bill. You see, this is a very, something quite simple that has actually gone a long way. Everyone knows about the Zahli situation. Yeah. There was a, an innovative effort to resolve a problem in the daily lives of citizens. Right. This is what civil society has to think of. Mm -hmm. Because I, 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 think, I actually think civil society has much more imagination than the yeah. political class right. and should focus on precisely these kinds of initiatives that can help people in their daily life, but at the same time, uh, you know, improve the daily life of, of people, that at the same time doesn't create a clash with the political class, right. a head-on clash, which, you know, ultimately they may lose. Yes, so this will, the best a strategic way forward would be to focus on the grassroots level, keep it a bottom-up tactic. The clash you're talking about, brushing up against the political class, it's, is that a, in other words, certain sectors of the economy they cannot touch, certain ministries? Is it, is it about weapons? Is it about the army? I mean, what... I mean, look, there are many red lines in the Lebanese economy. The, red, the, the Lebanese economy has essentially become an instrument exploited by the political class. <laughs> Uh, yeah. to, pers you know, to, to perpetuate its power. Yes. The trash crisis a few years ago, three years ago, was, the, was about what? It was about essentially revenue. Yeah. Okay? A, a major national crisis was created because some politicians wanted a bigger share of the revenue of the trash, right. of waste, of waste management. And that's being a 
waste management in quotes. <laughs> Essentially, they yeah. dumped, their dumping. solution was to dump the waste into the sea. Right. It's, it's been <laughs> shocking the extent to which this political class has systematically destroyed Lebanon. Yes. And this is one of the reasons why the Lebanese today feel that they are being, that their health is being affected, that their daily life is being affected, that their children are being harmed. Yes. That in effect, everything around them is a source of poison in their daily life. Right. And they're quite right. Quite right. It's, there's a shocking level of abuse in this country. But, just the, I mean, for the next stage, let's say they win some municipal seats. Let's say they win Beirut, and they become, they run the municipality. Do you think they would run into the same wall that anyone with good intentions runs into? Yes, they will. They okay. definitely will run into a wall. Yeah. This is not a political class that will give up on its right. power. Okay, yeah. but you know, they let them at the very least begin to organize and win. You know, it's just going to be step by step mm -hmm. over a long period. Um, you know, but they can do it. I mean, I think civil society in Lebanon is very rich in terms. It's you know, it's rich in terms of its pluralism. Yes, it has experience. Um, I think um, it has appeal. Mm -hmm. You know. It has a lot going for it, but yeah. definitely it will be opposed. Definitely. And, and this is where I think the, you know, the, the interaction between civil society and voters mm -hmm. is very important. Civil society tends to be much more democratic than the traditional political leadership in Lebanon. Right. And therefore, you know, people can understand that there are that there will be obstacles. I, now, this may sound very idealistic what I'm saying. I, I don't want it to be. Yeah. Because I'm very conscious of how the political class will do everything to undermine um, uh, any independent initiative in Lebanon that it, you know that that doesn't run through them. That's why I'm saying municipal elections are important because municipal elections actually are one thing where the political class, the influence of the political class, is more limited. Right. Okay. Even in a place by like Beirut, it's very complicated for the major politicians in Beirut to control all of Beirut, even in a place like Beirut. So local localism is one defense against the the sort of the the cannibalism of the political <laughs> class. So in a, almost a way of a new form of power sharing where you have the well, old elite getting a certain slice of the pie and then this new momentum getting a new share. And in a sense, it's almost like a, the lower levels will be given to the street and the upper levels will be. Well, I mean, if it's successful. Yeah. But one thing I think we should work on in Lebanon is already to ensure that, you know, I think uh, municipal elections are every six years. Am I correct? I think yeah. so, yeah. But the fact is, we should insist that municipal elections take place every four years, the same as parliament. Yeah. Because I think that ultimately, if we want to break out of this, this system, mm -hmm. we need to create an alternative. Uh, and I think at this point, under the Lebanese law, the local elections, A, they're not sectarian. Yes. As you know, we don't necessarily have sectarian breakdowns in right. local elections, right. even though in some cities they may decide to split half-half, but there is no law imposing sectarianism. Right. And, you know, it's a domain that the political leadership doesn't, with their control over it is much more um, is much more limited.
a sensitive subject, which is, we saw aspects of it two weeks ago where you had the anti-regime protests, and then you had protesters charging the anti-regime protests. And there were scenes of violence, tents burning. We saw a, a weak statement delivered by the Ministry of Interior that this is something that basically bad things happen. I think that's word for word. Do you think the momentum for change, however it manifests itself, this anti-corruption, this sincere yearning for a more decent state, do you think they can deliver that much so long as there is an armed group in the country that has derailed other aspects of sovereignty and independence? Look, I think that what we saw you're referring to the attack against the protesters um, two, uh, two weeks ago, and I believe it was uh, maybe no, sorry, a week ago. A week ago. A week, ago. A week yeah. ago. That was there is a very specific political motive for what happened. Hezbollah essentially is worried that any challenge to the political order in Lebanon may, in effect, weaken its anchoring in this political order. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. They have essentially created, in the last decade and a half, a political order that protects them. Yes. If this order is shaken, then ultimately it can backfire upon them. Mm -hmm. They don't want this. Okay. Yeah. It's as clear as day. Yeah. The same thing is, happen ha is happening in Iraq today. Mm -hmm. But does that mean that Hezbollah has a vested interest in undermining any initiative, let's say at the local level, yeah. uh, independent of them? To a certain extent, we have to understand that Hezbollah is not a totalitarian party, like many people say. The Shia community, especially in the Bekaa Valley, is a complex community. In other words, the party's ability to affect the nitty-gritty of Shia life on the ground, in the villages, between the families, is not as strong as people think. Mm -hmm. In other words, Hezbollah, to a certain extent, is willing to allow a margin of maneuver mm -hmm. uh, at the local level. And therefore, your question, can we have improvement when Hezbollah is so powerful in Lebanon? Yes. We have to look for openings mm -hmm. with all the political leadership, mm -hmm. and that includes Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. Political openings where they will allow change at the local level, okay? They will not allow change at the national or strategic level because that's a question of power. Yeah. But at the local level, you know, where their intervention may actually be resented, there is room to maneuver. Mm -hmm. So. While I understand your question, I, I, I understand where you're driving, you're, you're, what you're driving at. It's certainly true that at the national level, we have a political cartel in power, which includes Hezbollah. Mm. They will not allow for fundamental change in the system because it means they're accepting their own destruction. Yeah. Okay? Uh, they will not allow it. So if, if those, of, those Lebanese who want change if, are they willing, they have to ask themselves, first of all, are they willing to enter into a long fight to transform the Lebanese system? Are they willing to do that? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Are they willing to give up on their sectarian leaders? That's another question they have. 
Yeah. Are they willing to effectively you know, stand united in the face of a political class that will always be more united than they are? Again, these, I, have, I don't have answers to any of these questions, but the answers are essential for understanding whether uh, there is the possibility of change in Lebanon. And I think the possibility of change today, if we ask today, you ask me today, I think the most possibility of change is at the local level. Yeah. And that's where I think work must be done if we want to create a wedge into larger national issues. relationships with friends, with family, and unfortunately by the mid-1980s this whole environment in which I had grown up, um, you know, was changing. People were leaving. It it almost became a natural reflex of a young person at the time to pick up and leave. This year is is unique. I've now interviewed about five people with the same story. They're growing up in Ras Beirut during bad years, but they're still nostalgic for Ras Beirut and Hamra in particular. They all leave in 1985. It almost seems like that's a turning point for that generation that it was... It it was a turning point, uh, but let me... uh, What was the turning point? The fact is that in 1984, Beirut was... um, There was what was known as the Intifada against the government of Amin al But the thing is that Beirut itself in those years went back to being controlled by militias. And um, essentially... It was, there was, now how did it differ from the years between 1975, let's say, and 1982, um, when the state came back? The Israeli invasion would be the reason to leave, but you're still, you're there. No, I was was in West Beirut during the Israeli invasion. I didn't leave West Beirut. I stayed in the siege of West Beirut. So, no, but but the thing is that uh, there was a different atmosphere after uh, the sort of the intifada against Amin Ismail in 1984, Beirut was a much more violent place in those years. Um, uh, kidnappings were taking place, lots of people were being abducted, the whole infrastructure fell apart. I remember coming back in 1986 and I was actually, you know, it was, it was a very bleak atmosphere in the city. At the time, I remember I came, there were a series of car bombs. Mm. One day it would be a car bomb in East Beirut, one day there would be a car bomb in West Beirut. And so you knew that that day there would be a bomb, because the previous day a bomb had exploded in in East Beirut. And, you know, it was a very grim atmosphere, so that, um, you know, by the mid-80s the situation had significantly worsened. People in, Be- in West Beirut would go home at five o'clock. There yeah. was no nightlife. There was nothing. This was not the case during the previous years of the war. I think people today that often say that the chances of civil war re-emerging in Lebanon are nil or very close to nil is because they saw that breakdown, and that may be the sort of that that's still the 
but it hasn't reached that stage, and that is true civil war. I hope they're right, but I'm, I'm, I, I've always learned that when I underestimate uh, human beings, I'm usually right. So, I mean, you know, I hope we don't go back to civil war, any, yeah. whether it's civil war of 75, 76, yeah. or the war of, you know, 85 to 87, yeah. or later, uh, you know, 88 to 90. I hope we don't. But, but the um, fact that you even saw those years, whether you were living or coming back regularly, maybe it, all, it always is that anchor that though that's as that's the real tragedy you don't have anarchy, yeah. you don't have look i think i think i think there is the, a, a myth has sort of arisen in the post-war years in yeah. lebanon the myth is that the lebanese have amnesia about the war and they say you know they never seem to forget about the war they never seem to remember mm -hmm. the war mm -hmm. And the reason people say this is that there hasn't been some kind of process of, you know, of um, addressing the war. Yeah. I think this is nonsense. The fact is that I think the Lebanese of my generation and even older uh, have not forgotten the war. They remember the war very well uh, and almost intimately. And they're very, and they know how destructive it was. Yes. The Lebanese don't, haven't forgotten the war. I don't believe there is an amnesia about the war for those who lived through it. Yeah. I think that simply the Lebanese are not very good at doing, you know, going through these long processes of, of sort of closure, which is something, a big idea in many other countries that you have to somehow impose closure on yes. an event. Yes. But the Lebanese don't go through that. But they're certainly very conscious of the destruction and the destructive consequences of their war, yeah. and they know they know this very well. But you you leave in 1985. You head to the states, and you pursue your master's there. You studied at AUB as a, what, what was your degree at AUB? Political science. So it's, I mean, I'm guessing that's not just an accidental degree. You didn't just land on political science. Did, is there, what is the background there? Why did you choose that field in a country that clearly has, you know, a lot of its politics are wrong and maybe destructive? What turned you? I don't know. I mean, I didn't know what else I wanted to do. Yeah. Let me put it that way. Uh, you know, I didn't, I hadn't really thought this through, but I mm -hmm. always found that political science, as it was taught, had even at the AUB in the mid-1980s, there was sort of a theoretical element to it that I find, found slightly absurd <laughs> because, uh, you know, uh, here you we were a in a country <laughs> where we were dealing every day with very different politics yes, exactly. uh, than what we were learning, mm -hmm. you know. And, um, but in a sense, it, it made me very skeptical about the topic I was learning. I've never really been very to be honest, that interested in, in political science. But what it allowed me to do is to realize that, is that what really interested me was history. Yes. I mean, I, I prefer looking at events and learning from events mm -hmm. as opposed to learning the theory of political science, which is in many regards a very inexact science. Yeah. Uh, so but were, you, were you looking at your surroundings and sort of as a younger sort of student was that part of the reason you were drawn to it, that you were trying to maybe unravel what was happening around you? Not really, to be honest. No. I just didn't know what else to do. I mean, I, okay, I was interested in, you know, I, I don't, to be very honest, I don't really remember what yeah. even attracted me. No family me. pressure to go into that field? No, no, certainly not. Certainly right. not. No, certainly not. No, no pressure at all. I, I, uh, uh, 
I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought maybe I would I wanted to be a writer and mm -hmm. so maybe political science. I mean, what were the options? There was history, there was literature, there was, yeah. uh, you know, things like archaeology. I wasn't, I was never going to go into the sciences because I'm not very good at, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not drawn that much to the sciences. Yeah. Or things like mathematics and engineering, all these things didn't really, um, were not made for me, I, yeah. I felt. Yeah. Uh, so what was left, you know, and I, I took politics because you know, the system at the AUB was also a system of electives. So I may have done political science, but actually what I remember much more vividly and with mm -hmm. much more, shall I say, with much more pleasure are all the electives that I took at the time, whether in literature, whether in archaeology, or whether in, you know, history. Yeah. This was actually, for me, this is what I remember most from the AUB and that I enjoy the most. Right. So I'm, I'm guessing Lebanese politics wasn't even the focus of the degree. It was just the theory behind political no, science. No, the whole point, the whole thing that was ridiculous in political <laughs> science as the AUB is that we never discussed anything related to the region. I took one course on the region with yeah. Yusuf Ibish, and the, the countries he covered were Saudi Arabia and Yemen, which were so, which were regarded as safe. Yeah. In other words, he can teach, Yusuf Ibish can teach <laughs> Saudi Arabia and Yemen because there is no real controversy that's going to be generated by this. I'm, I'm trying to relate to my own experience at AUB. I did Middle East studies, which falls under the political science umbrella. But it's similar to what you're saying, electives all over the place, you can choose history and literature. Um, and I remember that it was during my years that they started offering a course on Lebanon, on the Civil War. That was post-war. This is late 90s, early 2000s. And I always found that to be sort of striking that it took that long to talk about Lebanon. So I'm going back now almost two decades previously, you're in that sort of zone where you're studying the subject that cannot be discussed. Well, look, look to, be, to, be, to be fair, mm. I mean, we were in the middle of a very polarizing conflict. Sure. I mean, it would yeah. have been very difficult to teach a course mm -hmm. on this. I'm guessing Without, it was like this before the war too. It must have been similar hesitation. Well, you know, I, I think... I think basically AUB found itself in a, it, it yeah. didn't know how to deal with this issue. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, it wasn't that they didn't teach about Lebanon, they didn't really teach about the Middle East very much either. Yeah. Um, and I think it was, you know, the university, these were difficult years, and they figured let's not add another level <laughs> of complexity or right. problems. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'm glad that since then they've, they've sort of remedied this. They have and they do well. I mean, it's at least now it's a serious subject that right. they go into, and I think I, I don't think they censor the civil war one bit. I think they allow for sure, you know, sure, which is probably one of the few institutions now that offers that. I mean, I don't think, uh, it, as far as I know, schools still do not discuss modern Lebanese history or politics. Right, it's still off completely. Right, right, right. But you you go from there to America, and. I know this from our own conversations in the last years, that you end up studying with someone who has his own sort of set of uh, ideas and memories of his youth in Lebanon, Fouad Ajami. Now, you, you've written on the subject a bit, and I just want to get on your, maybe the personal relationship you had with him. Did you go to America and sort of, were you drawn to this Lebanese professor in America, or did you sort of Meet someone who was American, who maybe was looking at Lebanon as sort of 
any sort of distant subject, treating it as, as a neutral entity. What, what was your impression of him when you arrived? Look, no, I didn't go to study with Fuad. When I met him, you know, I, I, I went, I, you know, I was accepted at Johns Hopkins and I went there because I had to be somewhere at some, some institution in Washington. So he was not even on the radar when you applied? To no, I mean, you have to understand, uh, he was well known in America, but yeah. in Beirut, uh, we were very far away from... Yes from that world, so I didn't really, I had seen him once on television, but no, mm-hmm. I hadn't, I certainly hadn't gone to, to study with Fuad. Yes. But, um, but it's interesting, you're asking me a question about Fuad's relation to Lebanon, and I think that's really a very interesting relation. While it's absolutely true that Fuad always sought to portray himself as an American, yes. as someone who was focused on American interests, and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. and who had a deep attachment to America, but I've always found him to be a very paradoxical individual. He had a certain fascination for Lebanon, the country that he had left as a young man, and um, indeed at the time he was uh, writing his book, The Vanished Imam, and he had just published an article in Foreign Affairs on the Shia community in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. So this is something he followed very closely. Throughout the years when I knew Fouad, he had always retained this sort of internal fascination with Lebanon. Now Fouad, as I said, he was a bit of a paradox. Fouad didn't want to create the impression in the United States. I don't think he wanted to get across the impression that he was anything other than an American. Right. So the idea of stressing his Lebanese background was not you know, he didn't overdo his Lebanese background on the Mm. one hand, Mm. but at the same time, he was never shy about mentioning his Lebanese background, Um, you know, and so there are many Fuads, we have to remember, this is a man who went through several, uh, through several periods, I mean, he went, initially he was more supportive of the Palestinian cause, then he he was fascinated by Imam Musa Sadr and he wrote his book on uh, uh, the vanished imam. There's the Arab predicament, which got the Arab to, predicament, of yeah. course, which was uh, this is how he was known. Yes. Uh, and then he came back to what I think is a fascinating book, uh, uh, which is the Dream Palace of the Arabs, right. where he begins with a very vivid uh, episode. It's the Khalil Hawi. The, the yes. suicide of Khalil yes. Hawi, yes. which is very interesting. And yeah. you know, it, this this actually shows you that this is someone who had a fascination for the local, he had a fascination for the region, and he could bring all this together. Yes. And then he ended, you know, the most famous last book, he did write something on Syria, but the book, uh, The Foreigner's Gift, which was a return in a way, on the one side, his fascination with Shia politics in the Middle East, mm-hmm. but also the American role in the Middle East. Yeah. He brought these together. And in yeah. many regards, if you go through Fuad's books in general, he tends to bring similar themes together from his other books. Yeah. In other words, they tend to meet, you sure. know, in, 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 sure. in, in he different... He says books. it in Dream Palace that this is a reflection on the Arab predicament. That he's almost sort of like maybe addressing some things that he left out, or maybe his, his emotions have shifted a bit. Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, you, the, you, I actually like your use of the word emotions, mm. because while I wouldn't really 
Corfu had an emotional <laughs> figure. I mean, but it was deep down, there was his interest in Lebanon, his reflection on the region was actually, you're quite right, driven by a certain amount of emotional attachment. It wasn't just, yeah. he wasn't just the cool uh, academic living far away in the United States. Right. This is something I think that's important to, to get to, to understand. Yeah. This is not someone who, because he lived in the United States, had cut himself off emotionally yeah. with the region of his origin. And you, you see him as a professor, and he's directing the the Middle East sort of the Middle East program, international affairs at Zeiss. Are you? Do you have any sort of memories of just the interactions with him when Lebanon comes up? Sort of maybe just a, an anecdote or something that sort of maybe brings him to life a bit. Because we all we know him as a writer and a TV figure. I think not many people know him as that kind of student professor relationship turned friendship turned colleague and there's a there's a, a few people I can think of and you're one of them that have that sort of you're growing with Fouad and your careers are overlapping Is look I mean to a certain extent yes but I mean I have to be honest that in 87 when I graduated uh, my relationship with Fouad while it remained friendly and sporadic mm. this is not someone I saw until he invited me to Washington 11 years after my return to Lebanon in I other see. words my relationship with Fuad was both I mean you know I I, I admired him mm. uh, uh, I liked him a lot on a personal level but we were not that close mm -hmm. uh, after I graduated from uh, Johns Hopkins okay. uh, but I always followed yes. what, what he was doing I read his of course his books mm -hmm. and so when I when I actually saw him again um, in um, I'm trying to remember the year it must have been maybe 2003 mm. uh, 2002 2003 I think uh, it was you know I was delighted to see him after all those years after yeah. a long time yeah um, I'll share a, per, a personal story uh, one of I used to correspond with him by email and one of the last emails I received from him, I, uh, he, there was a reference to the Daily Star, and he said, and I hope I get this right word for word, he said, the, the Daily Star remains in good hands under Michael Young. Well, oh, that's very kind of him, yeah. but I, I, I had only one page in that. I, I think that, that was the page he probably looked but, at. <laughs> but I, I'll tell you one story which I remember, and which in a way is a bit is quite sad. I had written uh, an obituary, if I recall, I think for Ghassan Twaini mm. uh, when he died. Um, and I, I think it was Ghassan, but I have to double check. But I then had received shortly thereafter a, an email from Fouad, and he had said something to the effect that, you know, when I die, will you write my obituary? <laughs> and uh, I said, I certainly don't That's, want to yeah. do that. But, yeah. but at that point, I, I later understood. He was. He knew he was dying, yeah. and uh, and so he had sort of sent this um, surreptitious yeah. signal, um, and you know, uh, but that was that was. Um, I think that was one of the last one of the last times we had communicated. And you left a wonderful piece, and I'll, I'll put it in the details box for the podcast. A, a a tribute and in a way an observation of the dichotomy between Fouad Ajimi's legacy and his friend, and his sort of maybe somebody he challenged regularly, their friendship faded over time, but 
very important name, Edward Said. And I think yours is among the few that really sort of explains the, that they both had similar, they, they both wanted the same thing in the end. There was a sort of a, a general understanding that they wanted the region to improve. American power, American influence is either the problem or the solution. But I, 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 I know it's been a few years since both passed. Do you, do you have any reflection today? And I know we're away from academia now, this is many years later. Do you have a sense that either voice may be one, or is it still sort of a sort of a dance between the two? Look, I mean, it's a, that's a good point. Uh, I mean, for me, I had written that piece, and I had said basically these are two immigrants to the United States. Yeah. And I can't remember the piece now. I wrote it a long time ago. But the point is Joseph that... Joseph Conrad comes up and sort of the, like, um, they're both enamored with the immigrants. Story. Well, they're, they're both immigrants. In a way, they could only have been what they became in the United States. Yeah. So in a way, they positioned themselves mm -hmm. with respect to the United States and their view of American power. Yeah. And in a way, it, it varied. Edward Said did not necessarily consider American power a uh, force for good, whereas Fuad did. Yes. But, I mean, more broadly, uh, you know, of course there was this dichotomy, and there still is an even more vicious dichotomy today in the Middle East studies world, mm. that to a certain extent over the years, because I followed all this very closely, has become quite demoralizing and quite destructive in a way, because the field itself has suffered from these internal wars that have taken place. Now, for well, we're talking uh, academic and think tank and all that's that. right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. I mean, both. But oh, I, yeah. I'm 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 thinking more in terms of academic. Mm -hmm. But the the fact of the matter is that one of the things that have damaged Middle East studies is that the think tank community has actually intervened, and uh, you know you you have a lot of academics who have ended up in think tanks. Yes. Yes. And the think tank community is a much more for me a much more, um, shall I say. Um, a much more negative mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Uh, element when it comes to uh, academia, uh, Middle East academia, because the think tanks, in a way, yeah. as I said, are being driven by very sharp agendas. When you say negative, do you mean in terms of that the region is hopeless and that's... No, what I, what I mean is simply that think tanks are driven primarily by agendas. Oh, I see. If you want funding, you have to know who is fund, your funder. Yeah. So yeah. you have to basically shape your re research to satisfy your funding. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean you, you change your ideas, but it means that you have to always ensure that your funders are satisfied, that yeah. their projects are what you take on. And, it's taken on, it's been driven by agendas, and to a certain extent that undermines the principle of, at least the principle, of, you know, objective uh, academic uh, study. Yeah. It, that's, that's, that's the broader picture I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But with Fuad and with um, uh, Edward Said, I never met Said, so I don't know him, but you know, today I look at their rift, at their rift, and I, 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 to a certain extent, you know, okay, Fuad has had his point of view, which was very different yeah. than Said's, yeah. and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And um, but to a certain extent, today the Middle East, if you want to look at the Middle East in a more enriching way, it's very difficult to, to dismiss one and go to the other. I mean, in other words, of course, I tended always to side more with Fuad Ajami. 
than with Saeed. But today you cannot really look at the region yeah. by ignoring someone like Edward Said. He's right. fundamental to an understanding of the study of the region. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether you agree or disagree with him, he's been very influential. Yeah. By the same token, it's not enough to say t about Fouad that he's basically an agent of American sure. empire. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the fact of the matter is that Fouad's approach, which was much more negative and much more critical of the Arab condition and of the Arab state system, uh, and even to a certain extent um, of, of, you know, uh, Arab elites and, and the whole majority-minority situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, this he understood as a Shia, uh, you know, intimately. You cannot really look at the region in a, in a rounded way without looking at what uh, Fuad Ajami wrote. Yeah. In other words, today I was always much more critical of Said, but I think, I think today, whether you agree with Said or not, and on many things I disagreed with Said. Mm -hmm. But I find that you really do have to understand a little bit where they both are coming from. Yeah. Because the region is a compendium of contradictory, often hostile opinions. Yes. And, you know, it, it's, the worst thing is to be anchored to one particular perspective and to refuse to sort of understand different perspectives. This yeah. is the worst possible thing. And I think that Middle East studies in the post-2011 period suffered from the fact that you had, in many ways, people were anchored in their particular ideological sphere mm -hmm. and didn't really want to break out of those. Yeah. And uh, it, it made for a much poorer uh, field. And I think it also allows people to change their minds. Because you said it before. Yeah, Fred Ajami, good evolved. point, good point. You know, there's a great interview, but not an interview, actually. He's debating Netanyahu in the late 70s on American television. Netanyahu is Bibi Natai, or Ben Natai. And you have Fouad Ajami with a long beard defending the Palestinian cause. You can fast forward 30 years later and it's a very different person altogether. Yeah. And maybe yeah. they're, yeah. But yeah, people, I think, even though their, their stories are fading a bit, I still think that rift, or whatever that rift unravels, is essential to understanding the Middle East. And it's also, America's eyes on the region, through the region's inhabitants living there. These are both products of Beirut, Edward Said via Egypt and other places, but they're both here, they're both in Lebanon, and they both sort of have relationships to the Middle East, even if they're detached and living there. And they're explaining this part of the world to an American audience. If we fast forward to today, do you see America's role in the region having changed much since those years? Going back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, people like to be a little hysterical when it comes to the current administration on all fronts. But do you see, through your experience, through your wide lens, a sincere American withdrawal from the region that is unusual in modern politics and history? Where, where their names become increasingly irrelevant because there's no America to turn to? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good question. It's a difficult question to answer uh, easily. I mean, uh, look, I think the United States, um, certainly in the last, let's say, 30 years, um, you know, certainly since the end of the Cold War, the United States has gone through a very fundamental transformation <clears throat> in its um, relationship with respect to the Middle East. I mean, 
Of course, the relationship goes back to the 19th century. It goes to the post-World War II period. But the post-Cold War period has a fundamental a fundamental shift takes place. Mm-hmm. Suddenly the United States is the only superpower. Yeah. Um, it's basically the sole actor, major actor, global power actor in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, it doesn't really have to calculate with respect to the former Soviet Union or Russia now. Right. And so its vision of, of its own role is suddenly enhanced, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know. Madrid and all these sort of ambitious... Madrid and then, but after that, even national security strategies yeah. where the idea is that the United States should ensure that it's the sole power globally. Yeah. And then you have, of course, the aftermath of 2001, and the United States goes through a series of wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, where the, of course, there are setbacks, but also you, this imposes a tremendous financial burden on the United States. Right. So that when Obama comes, he suddenly realizes, well not he suddenly realizes, but he realizes yeah. that the United States no longer has the means to manage, to be the sole power managing the region. Yeah. So he goes in a completely different direction, which is one of trying to create a balance of power in the region between the regional states. Yeah. That means Iran, that means Saudi Arabia, and this is very clear in the interview that he had conducted with uh, Jeffrey Goldberg in the, I think, the Atlantic, Atlantic yes. yeah. where he says Iran and Saudi Arabia have to learn to share the region between them. And this is perceived as sort of, uh, by many people, in a very critical way. In other words, they feel that Obama wants to effectively um, empower Iran. Yeah. And they feel that the instrument of this empowerment is the nuclear deal uh, with Iran. In other words, basically, you're giving, you're trying to normalize relationships with Iran. Iran is is effectively going to emerge as a regional power. Mm -hmm. You accept this as the United States. And this is, in a way, indirectly, a way for you to admit that the U.S. can no longer be the global power, the regional power. So it's less a friendly uh, policy to Iran and more a, we cannot... It's a realization of the limits of American power. So this is when Obama, this is, I think this was Obama's agenda. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, With Trump, paradoxically, he doesn't, you know, there's not a day that goes by without him criticizing Obama. But in fact, in the Middle East, Trump's view of the region is pretty close to, of the U.S. role in the region yeah. is pretty close to Obama's. Yeah. Now, he's a less sophisticated thinker, so he doesn't really know how to bring this about. Right. But what he does is he says, okay, we're going to rely, we're not going to give Iran the power, power in the region. We want to rely more on our allies, mm-hmm. such as Israel, mm-hmm. and to a lesser extent now, Turkey. Yeah. So my point is that what you've moved is from a realization, initially I believe that the United States had this hegemony in the region, was the sole power. With Obama, you have the emergence, particularly in Syria, of Russia yeah. saying no. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're not going to allow uh, the United States and the Western countries to impose, to get rid of Bashar al-Assad in the same way that they did 
Gaddafi uh, uh, in Libya. And with Trump, it goes further, where he, in a sense, he accepts the idea of the U.S. pulling out of the region, but with a reliance on traditional American allies such as Israel. Right. Now, this, what does, what does this, what's the story of this passage? What does it tell us? It certainly tells us that there is, it's, there seems to be today, a consens consensus in the United States that the United States cannot be and should not be the sole broker, power broker in the Middle East. Um, but whether uh, it's Obama or Trump who is correct is, I think, up in the air. In other words... A third term under Obama would have looked similar to what we have today. That's... No, with a key difference, that Obama was willing to empower Iran. Sorry, yes, that's... You see, and yeah. this is the fundamental yeah. difference that you see in the United States the critics or the supporters of Trump in the United States say that this is a critical difference, that in fact the United States should not empower Iran, uh, that the United States should empower Israel. And, you know, this is a fundamental dividing line that's taking place. And uh, my, my view, because I don't, you know, I, I move back a little bit, I say both are a problem. Of course, if you want to empower Iran, it's going to create a major problem for Arab states, no doubt about it. But I don't think that the solution is to empower Israel, which is also going to create a major power problem, forgive me, yeah. with a lot of Arab states. And the idea, and you see the problem, is the way to, to get this agenda passed is to presume that Israel is going to engage in a rapprochement with Arab countries, particularly the Gulf states. But I think that actually this rapprochement is not at all a foregone conclusion. And in fact, the obstacles to it are actually much more than the, than the, than the, than the issues that are facilitating. Yes. You know, many, that, many foreigners who visit Lebanon want to understand Lebanon. They turn to Pity the Nation by Robert Fisk. They turn to Beirut to Jerusalem by Thomas Friedman. These are both people that have less personal stake in Lebanon. They're both not from here. They find their journalism calling here. They become effectively world-renowned journalists while here. I think yours, yours is the only name that is Lebanese, writing about Lebanon, and you're able to both efficiently, in other words, you're not killing people with overused academic jargon, eloquent, it's a page-turner. Your book, The Ghosts of Martyrs Square, I think is, in effect, the only Lebanese story about Lebanon that is really enjoyable for a Western audience. I know, West, I know this book came out a few years later, in 2010, and perhaps it was even a bit too early because the story had not ended until years later, from having witnessed the March 14 revolution. Did you find yourself just naturally able to communicate what was happening to a Western audience? Look, I, to be very honest, I wrote that book. I didn't write it for a Western audience. I mean, okay, I, 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 I understood instinctively what Western audiences wanted to read. And I did want the book to sell, after all. So I was, I was of course, I wanted to interest a Western audience. But the, the argument of the book 
was directed at inwards. Mm. Because the argument of the book is a fairly simple one. It's that, you know, the Lebanese sectarian system, quite paradoxically, has created spaces for liberty, mm. for freedom, let me put it that way. Freedom of expression, freedom. Because the sectarian system has essentially meant that society tends to be stronger than the state. And it creates spaces for individuals to be themselves. Right. This, was a, this was the message. Yeah. And this was a message that I was really, that I wanted the Lebanese to understand. Mm. I wanted them to understand that their system, for all their complaints about the system, but there was something actually at the heart of the system that was actually very interesting. I don't think many Americans know what sectarianism is, but the Lebanese know what sectarianism is, at least in 2010. I think maybe the word is maybe looked up more abroad because they don't really know what it is. And then here it's almost taken for granted. Everyone lives right. through it. But, but there is always an assumption that sectarianism is something negative. Right, yeah. My point in that book was to say, wait a minute, no, let's, sectarianism is a complex, yeah. it's something rather complex. Yeah. Let's not look at it in such a simple way. Yeah. And, you know, I try to unpack this. But I also wanted to write essentially an essay on Lebanon, mm-hmm. again for the Lebanese. Mm-hmm. And I realized that those four, uh, four key years, 2005, 2009, mm-hmm. essentially encapsulated a lot of the fundamental aspects of Lebanon. The, the fact that when the sectarian system was in the right gear, it was tremendously powerful, so that, for example, it could create what took place in 2006, in, excuse me, 2005, yeah. after the Hariri assassination. Yeah. At the same time, it was very divided, divisive, so that in a way this moment that existed in 2005, which was motivated by sectarianism, yeah. not by some great celebration of liberty, but by sectarianism. But you're t- now you're talking about March 14 as a product of the sectarian... Precisely. I'm talking about the mass demonstrations in 2005 yeah. against the Syrians. Can you, can you just explain that? What do you mean by that was sectarian? What I meant is that on the 14th of March, yeah. particularly, but even in the weeks before and after that, mm. people were going down to Martyr Square to protest and demonstrate against the Syrian presence. Yeah. They were being mobilized essentially for sectarian reasons. Mm. If you recall, on the 8th of March, Hezbollah... Uh, yes. had a mass demonstration in support of Syria. Yes. A week later, the Sunnis particularly responded to this, what they regarded as a Shia mobilization in support of Syria by going down on the 14th of March in large numbers. Uh, they were, I think, reacting as Sunnis against this challenge that had come from the Shia community. Mm-hmm. I think that the Maronites went down, went down because they were they had their own agenda. Some wanted Michel Aoun to come back to yes. Lebanon. Some wanted Samir Jaja out of jail. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. These were fundamentally sectarian reasons. And this is where I think I break with the sort of the, the myth that March 14th has created mm-hmm. around that the 2005 period, yeah. where in a sense they see this as some broader nationalist uh, 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 protest against Syria. I believe that there was an element of nationalism there, but that the primary mobilization 
mobilizational uh, mm -hmm. uh, dynamic came from sectarianism. What I got from your book now, I know it's you can look at it now in hindsight and say that a lot of a lot of the sectarian component has only increased over time. What I got from reading your book was that March 14 was the, in a sense, the end of March 14. That it's the weeks leading up to March 14 that sort of defied the sectarian model. There was these sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, the people opposing the order. These sort of people that just rallied in Martyrs Square that were not looking at their sectarian identity maybe first. Could have been there. It's, but it wasn't at the forefront. Look, there was, I, I think even there, we have to be careful, mm -hmm. there was collaboration mm -hmm. across sectarian lines. That's undeniable. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the points of the book, yeah. is that you can be sectarian, and at the same time, if there are yeah. parallel interests, you will easily cross sectarian lines yes. and collaborate. And this is precisely what happened. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're less sectarian. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. People were sectarian. People, well, that's my point. Sectarianism is solely seen as a negative, as a, div, as a, a source of division. Right. What I'm arguing is that sectarianism can also be a calculation of collaboration. In other words, you, you as a sectarian group feel that it's your, in your interest to collaborate with another sectarian group. Yeah. And therefore, you know, you have no problems if you define your interests in a common way in collaborating. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying everyone who was there was sectarian. There were, of course, people who were not sectarian, who were anti-sectarian. Sure. But I think that the mass of people were there thinking in terms of their own communal interests above everything else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, this is why, in a sense, the book, for me, as I said, it basically looks at a period that begins with the demonstrations of 2005 yeah. and ends, if you will, with the uh, elections of 2009, um, in which, in a way, everything had changed. By then, you had some of the March 14th parties, egged on by Saudi Arabia, had effectively reconciled with Bashar al-Assad. Yeah. And so we had come full circle. Yeah. And this period between 2005-2009 had many of the fundamental elements that are common to Lebanese society. Political violence, sectarian collaboration, a reversal of alliances, yes. um, you know, the continued domination of the political elite, of the sectarian leaders. Um, even in the case of the tribunal that was investigating the assassination yeah. of Rafi Hariri, excuse me, not the tribunal, but before that, the, the UN investigation, yes. This was derailed fairly quickly because the United Nations did not want to um, really find those who were culpable. So, in a sense, I saw this four-year picture period, if you will, 2005-2009, as essential for understanding many of the recurring yeah. patterns in Lebanese political life. But that's something that, even though your direct, your intended audience was a domestic Lebanese one, um, I think it has served both functions very well, because a Western audience can read this book and understand the complexities of it. If they can find it. <laughs> well, I still have my hard copy. I know it was in paperback for a while. It's in e-book. It's on Amazon, on yeah. iTunes. So 
And I'm going to put a link to purchasing the book if people are interested. I still recommend it on the tour because I have my own sort of uh, amateur attempt at explaining Martyr's Square, of course, on a walking tour. So I'm given 30 minutes to try. And I mean, it's a, it's a subjective story, so it's, it's a different method altogether. But I always recommend that book as the only story that can address all that Martyr's Square means to Beirut today. It's the 20th century and the 21st century, and it's almost like Lebanon will never be anything else but what it is, which is a pluralistic society, one of confessional power sharing, and that's that. That's, you can't bet on... Well, I hope you're right. I, well, hope, <laughs> I hope you're right, because, yeah. um, you know, there are <clears throat> things I've seen in the society that are, you know, are, that worry me a lot. Yeah. If it can retain that pluralism, then that's half a victory. Thanks, Michael. Thank okay. you. Daily episodes as the uprising enters its fourth week. If you want to stay updated, simply subscribe to your preferred podcast platform or find us on our YouTube channel. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>